if, if right now, in this moment, you could make any one wish come true, what would that be? Kids, I wonder if you could think of, if you could just have one wish. I don't know if you ever do that when, when it's time to blow out the birthday candles. You know, make a wish. If you could make any one wish come true right now, what would it be? I think of all the, the good things in the world. W- what would you like to have most out of all the, the innumerable possibilities that would be at your disposal for, for pleasure, for satisfaction, for comfort, or happiness? As we come to God's word this morning, we're going to see an offer. We're going to actually receive a promise from Jesus of something far beyond our wildest imagination that we could hope or wish for. We're going to have promised to us a a joy that is indestructible, a joy that nobody could take away from you. No circumstance could take it away. No, no thief could steal it. No onset of old age or flood or pandemic could possibly tarnish or destroy it. Wouldn't that be amazing to have a joy like that, to, ho- to have a source of joy that you could literally never lose? That's the kind of joy that the Apostle Paul described as his own when he wrote to the Corinthian church to describe his life and ministry. He said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. That sounds like a real charmed life, doesn't it? That's his life. That's the way he lived. We are treated as imposters and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing everything. Wouldn't it be awesome to see that wish come true? To, to have a joy that is enduring and powerful and circumstance transcending. We, we know a lot, don't we? We just sang a song, fade, fade, each earthly joy. We know a lot about earthly joys that fade, don't we? We know something of what it's like to, to, to give your heart to something or someone and then lose it. And our hearts long for something that will last. And that's the kind of joy, a joy that is indestructible, that is solid and secure, 
That's the kind of joy that we want to think about this morning. That's the kind of joy that Jesus is after for you this morning as we pick up our study in John's gospel. So go ahead and turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Remember that Jesus, I I hope you don't get weary of these 20 seconds, but you know we do have visitors that come every week, and I want to at least set a little bit of the context of what we're studying here as we go through John's gospel. In these chapters, beginning in chapter 13, Jesus has been preparing his disciples for the events that are now uh, just hours away. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be brutally beaten and then crucified. But death will not be the last word for Jesus. He is risen. Yeah, I just thought we could do that right in the middle of the sermon, right? He's going to rise from the grave, and he's going to ascend to heaven, and he's going to send the Holy Spirit as their helper, supplying his disciples with every need that they would have for their ongoing mission of being his witnesses in the world. And the disciples, they just couldn't understand everything. So we see repeatedly, and we'll see it in these verses that we're looking at this morning, they just, they keep asking him questions. He's talking to them, and they just don't get it. They just don't, they, they don't have a category in their minds for a suffering Messiah. And so as much as he's talking to them, they just don't, it just doesn't click. Jesus has told them in, in verse 10 of chapter 16 that he's going away to the Father and they would no longer see him. But then in these, in these verses that we're about to read now, he tells them that they're not going to see him for a little while, but then in a little while they will see him again. And we see they're just confused. But in the midst of this confusion, Jesus presses in deeper and he gives us this this promise, one of the most breathtaking promises that we could possibly conceive of. So let's, let's, let me pray, because we need God's help. I said it to you last week, nobody texted me this. I did have one text from a brother who was praying for me, he sent me scripture. But nobody said to me, it's the spirit who gives life, Larry. The flesh is no help at all. I did say that last week. I think I said it out loud, or was that just a thought in my mind? I did say it, okay. We need to pray, because all of my excitement and passion up here is not going to do anything for you if the Spirit doesn't come and meet us. So let's pray, and then we'll read his, his word. Father, we do need you. We, we are needy, needy people. It, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. But the words that you speak are spirit and they are life. And so we pray that you'd meet us now as we look into your word. May your word prevail mightily in us and among us for your own glory and praise. We ask this through Jesus and for his glory. Amen. John chapter 16. I should turn there. I had it marked. And then I lost my mark. John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16, I'm going to read through verse 24. A little while, this is Jesus speaking, a little while and you will see me no longer, and again a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. So so they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. 
Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you were asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So did you see that wonderful, wonderful, amazing promise in verse 22? No one will take your joy from you. You will have sorrow, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Not just any joy, not just fleeting joy, not just circumstantial joy, joy that no one can take away from you. Now those words had a specific meaning to the 11 disciples who were listening to Jesus as he spoke those words at that particular point in his ministry. But the same principle that Jesus holds out there for his disciples, you're gonna have sorrow now for a little while, but then you're gonna have joy, and it's gonna be unending joy. That same principle still holds true for all disciples of Jesus in this age. And so we'll, we'll take a look at this text by considering the two parts. Sorrow now and joy forever. Those are the two points of the sermon. Sorrow now and joy forever. You will have sorrow now, Jesus says. Verse 20, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. I know we want to just finish that sentence there, but let's just pause on, you will be sorrowful. This weeping and this sorrow of the disciples mixed with the world's simultaneous rejoicing, it seems to be a clear reference to the sorrow and the pain that Jesus' disciples would experience in seeing Jesus delivered up to the shame and disgrace and agony of crucifixion. They would be sorrowful and the world would rejoice because Jesus would be betrayed and arrested and condemned like a guilty criminal. So much of the disciples' hopes and dreams and aspirations had been attached to his teaching and his promises of a coming kingdom. And, and the events now that were just hours away were, were so terribly unjust this righteous and innocent, merciful and compassionate Jesus, he would be humiliated and tortured and killed. How terrifying that must have been for them. How distressing it must have been for the disciples and the world's joy 
right? The mocking and the slander and the scorn that they would heap upon Jesus in those hours would only intensify their grief. And so the 11, these disciples, they would have sorrow for a time as they they watched Jesus endure the agony of the cross. Now, you and I today, of course, we live on the other side of the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We understand how the story played out in a way that the disciples, as many times as Jesus had prepared them for it, they just couldn't comprehend it. So we know how the story plays out. But we also know by our own experience and by the word of God that the resurrection of Jesus did not obliterate all human sorrows. And so it is still true of us today. You will have sorrow, troubles and hardships and the accompanying sorrow that go with it. They will remain for a time, a little while. The the joy that we know in this life, it's a realistic joy. It's a resilient joy. It's not for those who have a charmed life free of all pain and sorrow. That's not the joy that Jesus is speaking. We still have tribulation. In fact, Jesus is going to say that in just a few verses. In verse 3, if your Bible's open, I always tell you, Bibles should be open. You need to make sure that what I'm saying is what the Bible says, not just something that some loud, enthusiastic dude is, is preaching to you. In verse 33, he's going to say, in the world, you will have tribulation. Uh, The apostle Peter, in his first letter, he writes to those scattered saints in the first century, for a little while now, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. That's after the resurrection, but he says to these disciples in the first century, now, for a little while, you're grieved. You've been grieved by various trials. Paul described that the, the whole creation is groaning in the pains of childbirth until now. And we ourselves, he says in Romans 8, verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we still groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So there is sorrow now, there is groaning now, there is affliction now, even after the resurrection of Jesus. We do know In Christ, because of the resurrected Christ, we know that sorrows don't prevail. Sorrows do not have the last word. We can praise the Lord this morning that as Psalm 30 tells us, weeping remains for the night, but joy comes in the morning. The dominant note of this particular passage we're looking at is not sorrow now, but it's this unspeakable, eternal, indestructible joy that Jesus holds out to and infuses into his people even now so that the apostle Paul could say in the midst of all the litany of his calamities, he could really say as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And I know that's the part you want to get to. Let's get to this indestructible joy part, but I I think it would be good for us just to to linger on this observation for just a couple of more minutes, you have sorrow now. This is important for us believers in Christ to be mindful of. The sorrows of this life are not just meant to point the unbeliever to their need for a savior. It is for that. That is one purpose for them. 
But even us believing in Christ, forgiven of our sins, filled with the Holy Spirit as the first fruits of our adoption, we have sorrows now. I think actually, I mean, that's hard. When you think of verse 20 as a promise, you will have sorrow. That's not particularly pleasant to think about. But I do think in a sense it's, it's liberating for us when we hold that in view. It, it helps us to keep our expectations in order. And it presses us to orient our hope and our joy upon its proper source. And that is the Lord Jesus himself. You don't need, because the word of God tells us you're going to have sorrow. You're going to be grieved by various trials. Because that is true... It means you don't have to expend your energies trying to protect yourself from every sorrow under the sun because the Lord of the universe has already told you you're going to have sorrows. And it also reminds us that we don't have to plaster a smile on our faces and act like everything is chipper in our lives when really we're feeling absolutely miserable inside. There was a little bit of a chuckle when I said we're about to sing a song that miserable Christians can sing. I'm not sure if you have a category for that, miserable Christian. I have a category for that. Do you know why I have a category for that? Because the Bible speaks a lot of the misery of his own people. Like this one in Psalm 88. Here's Here's the word of a man of God. Psalm 88, verse 3. My soul is full of troubles. And my life draws near to Sheol. That's the pit of death. Good morning. He says, I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm a man who has no strength. Like one set loose among the dead. Like the slain that lie in the grave. Like those whom you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand. That's a man of God talking. Psalm 42, 3, the psalmist says, my tears have been my food day and night. And so we sing, through tearful nights of grief. We in the body of Christ, right? The word of God calls us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. And so the Bible does put this expectation upon us. You will have sorrows. So don't be embarrassed by them. Don't be ashamed of them. Bring, bring those sorrows out into the open. Bring them to the Lord and bring them to one another. Would you pray for our congregation? We'll pray this tonight at the evening service, but pray that our congregation would be a congregation, would be a church where it's safe to be sad, where, where it's safe to be asked the question, how are you? And instead of saying fine or good, when you know you're not, that you would just be free to say, I've been feeling really discouraged. I'm really tired. I'm really feeling bereft of hope. That we'd be able to say that for one another, to one another, and care for one another It is a privilege that we have, that we can bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. But that's a charge we cannot carry out if no one shares their burdens. 
you will have sorrow. And that's why we want to stock up on those promises of joy now. Those promises that God's word have to say to us about the joy that is ours. Plant seeds in your own soul now. Take up the shield of faith so that you can extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy when he comes at you with promises of resurrection joy. Joy is such an essential ingredient in the Christian's life precisely because you will endure sorrows. But even in those dark times, we can have a taste of joy because of Jesus. A joy based on Jesus is a joy that can't be lost. No, no sorrows can reach the bottom of our joy. No sorrows can finally upset what our joy is built on. Our joy is abiding and eternal and indestructible because it's a joy that is built on Jesus and Jesus is risen. Yeah, I know I didn't do the he. He is risen. The risen Christ, it is. It is the risen Christ who promises joy forever. You will weep and lament, Jesus says to his disciples, even as the world around you rejoices, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And no one, verse 22, no one will take your joy from you. This is immortal joy because he says, I will see you again. Death will not have the last word. I will rise from the dead, he's saying. He, they don't understand it yet. They had no, they couldn't understand. So he's still, he's not saying it directly. He just says, you're going to see me again. He means I'm going to come back from the dead, but they just can't understand that. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to be alive and with them. They would see his resurrected glory, and then he would go to the Father and send them his own spirit to be with them forever, and so their joy could not be taken away because he would not be taken away, and he is the source of their joy. Could you wish for anything greater than that? I mean, could you wish for anything greater than that? No one will take your joy from you. The, the scoffers and the secular elites cannot take your joy. The, the doctor with the biopsy report cannot take your joy. The hopelessly disappointing marriage cannot take away your joy. Your straying children cannot take away your joy. The, this crazy political climate or global terror or school shootings or financial disaster or unemployment or unfulfilled dreams or the memory of your own failures, they cannot take your joy. I just want you to understand this week in particular, the CDC cannot take your joy from you. The Delta variant cannot take your joy from you. No one and no thing can take your joy from you because no one and no thing can separate you from the love of the risen Jesus. And to the degree, actually, that all those various agents contribute to your experiences of sorrow now, they will be shown in the end ultimately to have been enlarging and intensifying that fullness of your joy that will go on forever. I do think that's what the illustration that Jesus gives here points to. I was thinking of an, what would an illustration be like that? And you've heard me do, if you've been here for a long time, I do that illustration of how when you're, you're in a, you have a terrible nightmare 
your kids are in trouble, they're in distress, and then you wake up and everything's okay. You have such a joy in your, in your children, a, a, a deepened joy. Your, your angst in that dream has been swallowed up into fresh and renewed and intensified joy. So th- I was gonna use that. I, just, I, just, I did use that illustration just now, actually. But Jesus gives us the illustration right there in verse 21 of what this sorrow becoming joy is like. And some of you know this illustration firsthand. You don't need Jesus to tell you about it. Look at verse 21. When when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow now because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Kids, kids, I want you after the service, maybe even right now if you really want to, but kid, every one of you, you should just go up to your mom after the service at some point, or maybe right now, and just give them a big, big, big hug. Because when you, you may not realize this, and maybe they've not talked with you about it, but when you came out, you really did a lot of hurt to your moms. I heard an amen there. I heard an amen or two. But that's, that's the deal. You understand, and you say, well, there's epidurals and there's adoption. I understand those things, but we understand what Jesus is talking about, right? Without the pain of childbirth, there's no joy of holding that dearly loved child. But the, the joy of the child, it's not just that the joy of the, of the child happens to come about sequentially in time after the pain of labor, but it's actually that the joy of the baby is produced by the sorrow and the pain of childbirth. So if you, if you wonder, how does the Apostle Paul, with all that whole long list of misery and sufferings and afflictions that he endured, how does he say sorrowful yet always rejoicing? It's because, well, he tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We do not lose heart, he says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day for this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us or is producing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look to those things that are seen, uh, to those things that are not seen. The things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. The afflictions are light and momentary. They don't feel that way now. They don't feel light and momentary when you're pushed. I mean, I don't know from experience, but I've seen it, and it's troubling to watch, too. I know it's, it's hard to do experience, but it's troubling to watch, to see someone you love in such agony. It feels like it's, it does not feel light and momentary, but when the baby is born, have, have you ever been visited in the hospital, or you had a baby, and, someone, and you, they see this brand new baby, and they're saying, well, tell me about the pain. What was it like? How? Nobody talks about the pain anymore. There's a baby. And he's saying, this, this affliction in this world is light and momentary, not in and of itself, but when viewed in light of the eternal weight of glory that is being prepared and produced by those sufferings. Th- this is where the disciples' experience between Good Friday and Easter is a little reflection of our experience in this life. If you had pinned the the disciples down there on that Saturday in between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and had said to them, do you think any joy can come out of this pain and sorrow that you've known in the last 12 hours? 
I think they would have said it's impossible. They would not have been able to conceive of joy being produced by that sorrow. But that's just what happened. In just a few hours, their sorrow and their sighing fled away. Their tears were dried up, and so it will be for you and for me in Christ. Tears will dry up. Grief will lose its grip. That's how it was for the disciples of Jesus when that resurrection sunrise scattered the shadows of sorrow and pain from their hearts. And so it is for every child of God. Every tear you shed is preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. They don't seem light and momentary now. But they will be light. That agony and that heartache, it will, it will sink into the ground like a seed and it will sprout up into a mighty redwood of everlasting joy. That's what God's word is telling us. That's what Jesus is promising. All of this is true for the children of God because of Jesus. In fact, that's the only way we could possibly be children of God, right? This is not just pie in the sky. Hey, it's going to be okay. This is a joy that is ours because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection. Because if it were just up to us, if, it was, if we were left to ourselves and what we deserved and earned, then what we would have to say is sorrows will be our lot and they will never be taken away from us. If it was just about us and what we deserve. Just pause here. Somebody told me yesterday I should just pause sometimes. So I'm going to just pause. And let you think about that. That if it was just up to you and what you'd earned the word of God would say, you will know sorrow and no one will ever be able to take your sorrow from you. That's what we've earned. And I'm saying that because the Bible says in Psalm 16 verse four, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And you and I, we have run after other gods. Jeremiah chapter two says this is an evil, this is an outrage that causes the whole heavens to be appalled and shocked and utterly desolate. What are those evil, what is that evil? Jeremiah 2, 12 says my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me the fountain of living water, to dig up, to hew out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. Every one of us is guilty of running after other gods, of seeking our satisfaction and joy and happiness in other places instead of knowing God and loving God and imaging forth God. And so we are deserving of God's righteous judgment because the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. And so what you and I deserve is sorrow that will never be taken away. It is to be forever separated from the goodness of God to be forever enveloped by weeping and gnashing of teeth, 
to be forever cast into the fiery furnace whose flames, which flames never are extinguished, to be forever sustained, to suffer the agony of God's eternal anger. That is the wages of sin, and that is what all of us have earned for ourselves. And so it's really good news, isn't it, beloved? It's really good news that God so loved the world in Christ that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came to earth 2,000 years ago to bear God's righteous wrath and to restore us to the joy and fellowship that we had thrown away to dig up those broken cisterns that could hold no water. Jesus came and he restored that fellowship and that peace and that joy with God. The scriptures say he himself came, Isaiah 53, 4, I'm sorry, 53, 3, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. That was the world's joy that they knew on that Good Friday. They esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. The the hour of Christ's suffering, that hour that he came and endured willingly for the joy set before him was his own death by which he removed our guilt, the guilt of all who would believe in him, and he cleansed us from our sin and removed the wrath of God from us so that we could be brought spotless and blameless without blemish into his presence where fullness of joy is found and where pleasures forevermore are located. Through him, through Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And so we can say this morning, can you, believer? Listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I want you to understand this joy that I've been describing, it's not for you. It's offered to you and I'm offering it to you right now. If you're still living in your sin, if you're still running after other gods, your sorrow will be multiplied. But if you would acknowledge your miserable attempts to find a satisfaction apart from your creator. If you would see that and confess it and turn from it and seek refuge in the loving mercy of our Lord Jesus, he will save you and he will bring you into that joy right now. And I urge you to do that. If you have questions about that, if we could help you, you talk to somebody who has invited you here this morning or or myself after the service, we would love to help you understand and come to know that joy that is found in relationship with God through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But Christian brothers and sisters, this is our experience. When all else fails, Jesus is mine, right? When all else fails, he still remains. And we get the first fruits of it now. That's a lot of joy coming. The resurrection of Jesus set in motion a harvest of joy that will one day culminate in the resurrection of the dead and the renewal of all creation. 
That's where the resurrection of Jesus is headed. Every tear wiped away. All things made new. The righteous who have been oppressed and persecuted and hated and vilified now vindicated. And all of Jesus' enemies overthrown. No more curse. No more pain. No more weeping. No more death. The former things remembered no more. All of that guaranteed because Christ is risen. He is risen. In the risen Christ, joy has triumphed over sorrow. Day finally has dominion over night. Light has thrashed against the darkness and prevailed. Christ, through death, has destroyed the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Death has been swallowed up in victory. And we, brothers and sisters, get the first fruits of that joy right now. Peter says, I quoted it earlier, in this, you, we're grieved by various trials. But do you know what he said right before we're grieved by various trials? In 1 Peter 1, he said, in this, in this glorious salvation and this inheritance that is kept for you in heaven, unfading and imperishable and undefiled, in this salvation, you rejoice. Even if now, for a little while, you are grieved by various trials. Not you will rejoice on the last day when it's all made new. That's true, your joy will be brought to consummation. But you will have joy right now. In this you rejoice, even in the midst of griefs. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So brothers and sisters, you will have sorrow now. And it it is easy. It is easy to become tired of living in this sad world, is it not? We get tired. And it's hard to obey. We get tired and it's hard to hope. We get tired and it's hard to love. It's hard to rejoice always. It's hard to be faithful in our vocations. But if killing the author of life could not extinguish that joy that Jesus speaks about, then surely nothing can and nothing ever will. He is risen. Remember that. Remind yourselves of that. Remind one another of that. Your sorrows have a certain expiration date, but you and your joy will go on forever and ever. And so whatever sorrows lay ahead of you this coming week, there's joy available to you in the midst of it because God has not destined you for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you are doing. Do you want to know why I remind you every single week? Do you you get tired of me telling you about those fiery flames and that crushing eternal torment? I don't mean to make you wallow in the guilt and the sin, but there's such joy in knowing what we were owed and what we've been rescued from and what he's going to bring us into, what Jesus endured for us. And because Paul says right there, build one another up, remind one another, encourage one another with these things. Christ is risen. 
And so, oh, I was going to just go on, but okay, yeah, let's do that. He is risen. And therefore, no one's going to take your joy from you, believers. We get to remember that when we come to the Lord's table. So I would invite you to uh, take out that little prepackaged cup if you are going to observe with us. We do as I say.